The Actor CEO Podcast, Episode 23. I think what happens today, if the actor doesn't get the training or the know-how and knowledge in uh, in school, it's going to take two or three years coming into a market, particularly like New York City, uh, maybe a little bit longer in L.A. before they get a sense and go, oh, wow, it took me two or three years just to understand this. You know what I mean? If they can come into these markets with a firmer understanding, uh, they can be ahead of the game. Going up. You're an actor, but you're also a business. Take control of your career by learning how to manage it like a boss. Be driven. Be responsible. Be in control. Be an actor CEO. And now, your host, Mike Moreno. Hello again and welcome to the Actor CEO Podcast. Thank you for joining me on this journey of learning, exploration, and dedication. If you want to keep getting these tips and tricks from industry pros, established actors, and the fabulous hardworking artists we bring on this program, make sure you subscribe to this podcast. That way, when you're on the go to your next audition, commuting home from work, or even at the gym, you can take a moment to listen and get some serious insight into building a better career by becoming an Actor CEO. My guest this week has held a commanding presence as a theatrical scholar and acting professor for two decades. With a Ph.D. in theater history, criticism, and literature from University of Wisconsin-Madison, he's a four-time Fulbright scholar working as a professor of acting and lecturer across the globe in places like Russia, Finland, Taiwan, China, and Italy. Here in the States, he has taught at CSU Long Beach, University of Wisconsin-Madison, and Harvard University, to name a few, with his current professorship at the University of Louisville, Kentucky. As an actor, he has played on Broadway alongside Al Pacino, starred in the world premiere of Angels in America, was directed by Clint Eastwood in his film Bird, starring alongside Forrest Whitaker, and has played on stages all over America, including Yale Repertory, The Mark Taper Forum, Oregon Shakespeare Festival, San Diego's The Old Globe, and the Guthrie Theater. His writing has been published across the country and internationally in outlets like the Oxford University Press, the Los Angeles Times, and American Theater Magazine. And now his latest book on acting, entitled An Actor's Task, Engaging the Senses, is available through Hackett Publishing. Let's say hello to Dr. Baron Kelly. Dr. Kelly. Thank you so much for joining us. I uh, really appreciate your time, and it's uh, great to have your experience and insight here uh, for our listeners. Thank you. Thank you. So you have spent a lot of time in your career teaching acting, both as uh, in the theater world and also uh, for film and television. How has teaching acting helped you as an actor? Well, you know, you, you recognize certain problems that people may be having to move their process forward. And because I've been in this game for a while, you start to be able to deduce various ways that you can help people. So I know it makes me a better actor because if I encounter a problem in the process, my mind immediately replays the tape of somebody that I had to help in a similar problem. But also, um, the way I work, I've helped other people achieve their goals through the way that I work. So I know that uh, it's a twofold process, you know, for, for me anyway. Can we drill into this uh, concept a little bit? Can, what are some of the ways that you work that you've been able to develop through going back and forth through a teaching process that now you have honed in on and, and created an efficient process for yourself? Well, I think what happens with a lot of people when they get ready to audition for television and film, mm. and even in the theater, they forget certain things, that there are external stimuli 
that the actor should be able to be sensitive to, which will add to the life that they are supposed to be giving forth. With film and television, it's a little different, but still what radiates in the eyes or what emanates through the eyes in the process is affected by all that stimuli that we're, that we're exposed to. Right. And in the theater, it's the same thing. So I try to help people through that particular process, but, you know, going a little bit more in depth than what, you know, uh, the great Uta Hagen and such, uh, uh, and Earl Gister, who taught at Yale for years. So it's more of a, a stimuli uh, to get actors to understand how that stimuli affects them in their process and, and, and what's in that world that they're trying to bring to life. You know, the imagination, I believe in that truly. I mean, some people have that gift. It's a sense, just like all our other senses. Some people are more in tune to it than others. Children certainly are in tune to that when they play. And um, to get people to understand how to enter the world of play for the kinds of stakes that are evident in the text. And I am a, an old-fashioned text person. That's where it all starts. Everybody else tries to overlay all this other stuff on top of the text. But what's in the text, and, you know, that'll give you the pieces of gold that you need if you're patient enough to mine that stuff. So so speaking of text, let's, let's explore that concept a little bit. I mean, you've taught theater history and dramatic history uh, in a number of places here in America and across the world. What do you think is so helpful about teaching the history of acting to actors. Well, there was an old sort of saying that actors are stupid and dumb, mm. that actors are uneducated, right? Right. If you're a computer scientist, <laughs> you have to know <laughs> how the first computer was built. Right. You have to know that. You can't be an engineer, a computer engineer, or computer scientist without understanding how the first computer was built. Well said. Yeah, enough said. And it doesn't matter what culture you're in. You know, you have to understand how that theater was particularly created. I mean, you know, every particular culture has their own way in. Right. But you have to, you have to know. I mean, you know, we're living in a different culture now, you know, I mean... When Eminem and all these people are doing movies and it's, uh, you know, when Eminem did his movie and all these rap stars are doing movies, it's like they don't know anything about theater. They don't care. <laughs> they right. don't really care. Right. You know, it's about being a model that can talk, I guess. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But you think having that basis of the understanding, like you're saying, that the original programming of how we got to where we are now, uh, you think that that's actually a much bigger benefit for actors? I think so, because if they're going to jump off from that, you know, they have a firmer grounding so that, you know, the great Yo-Yo Ma, the classical cellist, I heard him on an interview once where somebody said, you know, you travel all over the world and you perform in these different cultures. What is it that that gives you? What does that experience gives you? And he said that, you know, because he'd been playing cello for such a long time when he was a child, of course, and he travels all over the world, when he comes back to the, to the United States, he's able to figure out a problem from many different angles. Mm. And if you are immersed in how something began and you give yourself that understanding where you are in your present life, it can certainly help you because, uh, you know, you can't. Anybody that's a piano or a classical pianist understands about Beethoven and Bach. Mm -hmm. How can you not be a classical musician? 
and not take music history. They don't. Right. It's impossible. So, you know, I just, I just, I, like, again, I'm from the old school, so it gives you a firm grounding and a firm footing to understand how something was, how something began. Right. And then um, where it is today. Moving from this, uh, that training aspect of the in the classroom aspect for an actor and then out into the real world, what would be some of the top pieces of advice that you would give an actor who's now transitioning from a, either a graduate program or an undergraduate program now moving into the industry? Study the market of where you're going. Mm -hmm. Know your type. A lot of people don't even understand that concept of understanding their type and how they fit in. Mm -hmm and know how to audition on camera versus the stage mm -hmm. in this market those are the three things that you have to really know it doesn't matter what market you're in because even if you're in a smaller market and you you know get with an agency there are going to be certain auditions that you're going to be put on tape and you know hopefully you know on camera for um, sending one thing from the east coast to the west coast but understanding how to audition on camera, knowing the marketplace and knowing your type. Absolutely. Are there some resources that you can think of off the top of your head that actors can access right now in order to get that information and help them develop those skills? Well, I think, you know, one thing for type is people watch film, television, and they sit there and go, oh, yeah, I could have played that role. Mm -hmm. I mean, okay, why? Why do you think you could have played that role? Or ask somebody, how do you see me? What kind of a type am I? But that's a, that, that goes into many different kind of subdivisions as well. You know, of course, there's the best friend and there's the blue collar worker and the white collar type and this and that. Specifics. Because agents, when you come into an office, and the usual question is, uh, tell me about yourself. <laughs> right. that, that terrifies people because what are they going to say, you know? And then... If you can start talking about how you fit into the industry and how you can be seen, because, of course, when you're unknown and you're not a known quantity, you know, you're going to have many different kinds of looks. But right. until one of those looks takes off, you have to be able to understand where your bread and butter is. So everybody that's a sort of a Procter & Gamble white collar type is not going to be able to play a blue collar type. You right. understand? Or look mm -hmm. like a blue collar type of what the industry probably. Case in point, Viola Davis, who's right. a, wonderful, a wonderful actress. Now, she does not look like Halle Berry. Right. She does not look like Kerry Washington, okay? But right. she is a wonderful actress, and it's, it's taken her now to get the recognition that that woman has deserved for a long time. Mm -hmm. But it's just the way that the industry is uh, situated. And so, again... Know your own type. And that's, you don't, you don't even need to pick up a book because you can watch and see, ask people why. You know what I mean? How am I, how do people see me? Right. As far as knowing the marketplace, you know, certainly the West Coast is different from the East Coast. Chicago's different than Boston. Understanding the kinds of outlets that are there, the kinds of theaters that are there, the kinds of, uh, agencies that are there for the kinds of local work that can be had, you know, with the regional commercials, with the particular uh, industrials. A lot of actors don't even understand that a lot of money can be made in industrials and that can pay your rent, particularly if you're living outside of New York. Let's, let's, let's forget about New York for a while, but just outside of New York, these training films are bread and butter for a lot of people. 
Right. And with production costs coming low and l- lower and lower for everybody across the board, uh, they're becoming more popular. And online marketing and all that type of stuff is immense for companies. So they need these this talent more now. That's correct. That's correct. But the actor coming into, I think what happens today, if the actor doesn't get the training or the know-how and knowledge in uh, in school, it's going to take two or three years coming into a market, particularly like New York City, uh, maybe a little bit longer in L.A. because everything is behind gates now. You know what I mean? Before they get a sense and go, oh, wow, it took me two or three years just to understand this. You know what I mean? Right. If they can come into these markets with a firmer understanding, uh, they can be ahead of the game because a lot of people are behind the game right now. Well, let's talk about that. Why do you think that actors don't have access to that concept? Because what we're really talking about is thinking of your career like a business, and there are objective ways to approach it if you think of the business as a whole and how you fit into it. Why do you think that actors coming out of training programs don't have that concept? Well, you know, first of all, there are only a handful of people that have really been in the trenches making their livings as actors in particular markets, either in New York or the West Coast. And there's a big difference when you've made your living. I'm talking about making a living as an actor. Uh, as opposed to doing it part-time or something, or regurgitating things out of books. There's a different way to be able to un- to get people to understand how the business um, is structured. Right. Because the bottom line is, if you're thinking of yourself as a business that you're selling, what is the product that you're selling to have somebody give you $6 a week, $60 a week, $600 a week, $6,000 a week. What do you have? What are you selling that's going to make somebody want to give you that salary? Mm-hmm. And that's where it has to start. It's not because I played Annie in Annie Get Your Gun or something like that. There are plenty right. of people that it's about it's a business where do you fit into the business how does the actor fit into the business to make money to make money for the agent right that's what it's about they want to make money right. how are you until you then blow up and then you know then it's like get us a, a mike moreno type get us a baron kelly type right that's what it's about isn't it funny uh, all of a sudden after Friends, everybody was looking for a Jennifer Aniston type. Exactly. You know what I mean? But <laughs> I mean, if somebody came to me and said, get me a Gary Oldman type, what would that be? Just because somebody played Hamlet at Montana Repertory Theater or the graduate program at the Montana University, and everybody says, oh, you should go to Hollywood. Right. You know, <laughs> that doesn't mean... Yeah, you understand what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. The business has changed so much, and I guess every generation says that because the actors in the 1950s were saying that as well. Uh, going into the 60s, you know, Martin Sheen and all of them that were young actors at that time, the technology of the actor was changing, and they were having to understand how they fit into the into the business. I mean, back in the 50s when television was starting, everybody was trying to do live television. Right. Theater meant something else completely different than, than what it means today. I mean, you know, you know what I mean as far as you, you had brilliant actors doing, giving performances in little spaces. Yeah. Right? So it didn't matter 
it didn't matter the where the performance was it was still the same level of performance and that's today what i think has been watered down doesn't matter whether you're down at the cherry lane theater or whether you're at the august wilson theater on broadway the same level of the performance should be there and i think what happens is today there's a certain slickness that uh, people are coming out of school with and the depth is being lost. Mm. A lot of people are talking about this now, that depth is being lost. So, you know, if you're having teachers, I'm not saying all, but a lot of teachers have never, I always tell people, you know, you get people that have been in the business, just ask the people that have been in the business if they wouldn't mind bringing in their pension and welfare, you know, printouts, right. as opposed to everybody else. <laughs> Say, okay, well, here's my proof. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like you're going to be at ABT at the American Ballet Theater and the choreographers are going to be, you know, come on. <laughs> They've yeah. danced the great roles. They've been around. They know how to tell you. Uh, I think if you put your foot here, you'll be able to get a little bit more leverage in your spin. <laughs> right. Hey, actors, what if I told you you could take acting class with Kevin Spacey or Dustin Hoffman? You'd freak out, right? And then you'd ask, okay, how much? Masterclass is an online learning service that gives you access to acting classes with these master actors for just 90 bucks. You can't even rent rehearsal space in New York City for that much, and you get hours of exclusive footage you won't find anywhere else, worksheets and templates, and a community forum to connect you with other passionate performers. This is access you can't find elsewhere, and the knowledge that these two titans of film and stage deliver in these courses is priceless. Click the link on the homepage at ActorCEO.com or find it on the resources page at ActorCEO.com slash resources. Masterclass provides phenomenal content, so don't miss your chance to learn from the greats. Now back to the show. One of the ways uh, an actor can uh, objectively approach their career like a business and ensure that they're proactive and gaining control over their own career is by reaching out to theaters or casting directors or industry professionals that they want to work with uh, when they have a good understanding of their brand or their type and saying, these are the things that I see you producing. These are the things that I see you working on. I think I would be really right for your types of projects. Mm -hmm. When you reach out that way, uh, you've helped me and you've helped others in making that connection. And one of the things that you really stress is that when you reach out professionally, you need to write your letters, you need to write your emails like a business letter very clear and very, very, uh, not necessarily blunt, but quite specific about what you want and respectful of their time, of course. So why do you think that that is the most efficient way to go about it? Well, I mean, you know, we're living in the digital age now and mm. all kinds of things can be sent instantaneously. When I was starting out in New York City, you would run into actors between 57th Street and 42nd Street, east to west, running up to the agents and casting director's offices and you could knock on the door, slip your pictures under the door. It was a different time in New York City. Today, if somebody sends a letter and it is horrible punctuation, mm. it is horrible grammar, that's the first line of defense. Right. I mean, if you can't bother to spell correctly. It's like a headshot. If your headshot is terrible, that's their first line of defense. They're like, well, then you don't know what this industry is looking for. You don't respect my my level of value in this industry to to actually spend the money or spend the time or or take 
chances on getting it done right. Exactly right. Now, that's not to say that every actor now has to run out and uh, take a grammar course, because a lot of people, look, a lot of people who studied theater weren't great in math. Some people were. That wasn't their forte. English, staying in class, writing 25-page papers, that wasn't their forte, Right. right? So the basic skills have been lost in general in this society as far as letter writing and communication. And you have to get back to being able to understand that writing is about being succinct and about writing, writing, and rewriting. And a lot of people are lazy and they don't show their stuff to people. They don't get advice from people. Right. And that, that's basically what has to happen. If somebody sends me a letter, just about anything, in, an inquiry or a query letter about the program, and it's well written, why they pro- perhaps would are interested in this program, that they've taken the time to fashion that letter in a certain way, that says something. Right. More so than somebody that just says, I'm looking for an MFA program, you know, blah, 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 blah. My girlfriend has a job there, so I want to try to go to school. You know, come on, give me a break. Right. It's important. Yeah, because again, you're you're asking for their time and you're asking for their professional opinion and also professional leeway to let you come in and, and interview for a job. That's what we're talking about. And if you can't take the time to put your stuff together professionally and succinctly, then obviously you don't respect the job enough. Or you're not you're not worthy of $6,000 a week. There you go. Make yourself worthy of that number. Make yourself worthy of that number. Yeah. That's it. That's it. I'm not faulting a lot of theater programs, and, and but I've heard this time and time again with actors coming out of these programs, how come we weren't taught this? It's easier, certainly, if you're in New York at, Juilliard or NYU or, you know, you're up in New Haven at Yale, you can get people to travel and you can get the big casting directors to come up and talk a little bit about what they've seen, the do's and the don'ts. But, you know, everybody's not at Yale, Juilliard and NYU. Right. Uh, You know, so uh, another thing to say about those schools, everybody does not come out of those schools and become a superstar. Okay. Also true. There are people that are just like any other program. Maybe they come out the first year or so, and I know about three of them from Juilliard. They're hot the first year or so. They get a tour. They get a maybe they go up to OSF or something, but then they come back and they're still going. Oh wow, the big thing didn't happen. Right. And then what do they do? They want to go into teaching. They you know what I mean? Something right. happens. So it's just uh, again knowing where. One fits in the business and having the correct tools to be able to breach the first wall. You know, it, it's, and it's not a matter of two letters. It's a matter of what? The game of odds. You know, yeah. if, some, if somebody, if you send out, you know, 50, I'm just a random number, you send out 50 and you get a response from two, you've already beaten the odds. Right. And also following up, too, there's a, the idea of constant contact. Uh, professional persistence, uh, as someone else put it once. That's that's important. And, and knowing how to thread that needle so that you are not pestering someone, but you are making sure that you are in front of them in a professional, clean, succinct way so that every time they think of a project, there's a good chance that they might be thinking of you as well. And to keep yourself up in the top three to five 
of someone's mind is what the it's about getting the call back. It's not so much about getting the job. It's about getting the call back. Right. And to be able to, you know, be up in the top three to five of someone's mind. And if you have to be someplace at two o'clock, you do not show up at two oh five. You do not show up at one fifty seven. You understand what I mean. Right. A little fun note about that. Uh, certainly now in New York City, and I'm sure people in Los Angeles and other markets experience this too. Man, does it get hot and nasty out sometimes. And you got to be coming to an audition ready to go along with everybody else, looking fresh, looking clean, camera ready, essentially. And uh, if that means you have to get there an hour early so that you can carry your clothes with you and change in your car or change in the bathroom there and freshen up and be spot on so that you're ready to go so there's no question about you being camera ready and ready on the day, then that's what you got to do because someone else is coming in right behind you ready to go. It's just these little things like what you're saying right now, Michael. These are things that people don't think about at all. They don't think about this at all. It takes time. It takes time. And it takes. it's a skill of being able to be a responsible, professional person. Let's talk a little bit about your experience as an actor running around New York City specifically. You've spent some time on Broadway. You had this uh, wonderful opportunity to act alongside uh, Al Pacino and Salome. What were some of the lessons that you took away from that experience? Are there things that you still hold on to, touchstones that you still um, grab onto that that you had a chance to experience through that? Forget about the celebrity right. and just deal with the person as an actor. Because most of the down-to-earth good people are going to want you to deal with them as an actor. Right. They sweat. They spit. They forget lines. And once you get that out of the head, then things are golden. I mean, sure, of course, you know, you work with... I mean, it's the same thing even in regional theater, for God's sake. It doesn't matter whether you're at the Guthrie or the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, Yale, back in those days. You, be, right. you know, the, these people couldn't have been superstars, but you're working with Randall Duke Kim, who is one of the greatest actors this country's ever created, you know, and you're going, wow, I'm learning how to do what I love, or I'm able to play on the same basketball court or on the same field as somebody that I admire. Right. That's how that's how it, you know, that's how it sort of that's how it gets you better. Absolutely. I mean, it's an undeniable factor, uh, uh, the celebrity factor certainly and just the admiration factor too for somebody who's doing something that you want to be skilled at and good at. And if they're a good person. Yeah. If they're a good person and they help you. Mm. Even though Pacino's got a great sense of humor, it's all about the work. Yeah, It's not about the celebrity. Did you have a similar experience when you were working with Clint Eastwood on his film, Bird? No, East, Eastwood's a joker. Uh, Eastwood, that was like the first film or so that I did in Los Angeles, and I was at a bar. Uh, I was down at the Old Globe doing a show, and you know, I was in the season there, and some actors were talking about that they had screen tested for something. And I said, well, I, sh I should, how come my agent didn't tell me about this? So mm -hmm. one thing led to the next anyway. So I went in and read, and then they said, why don't you come back the next day and put you on tape? Okay, so they put me on tape the next day. And then I was going back to New York, and I hadn't heard anything in a week. And then I called the casting director, whatever, to make a long story short. They had been looking for me. This is before cell phones. And the agents in New York had given them another number in California for me that didn't work for some reason. I don't know what it was. Uh -huh. Going and meeting him, because Eastwood was the one that he okayed everybody on that film. Right. I think uh, he let everybody just do their job. Now, I've heard this from other actors since. 
He lets everybody do their job. You probably get the one or two takes. I'll tell you the person that blew my mind the most, and I think I'm going to see him in Chicago next week, Forrest Whitaker. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm going to see Forrest in Chicago next week. I was sitting in the trailer waiting for one of the one of the scenes. I can't remember. And all of a sudden, there's a knock on the trailer door, and it's Forrest Whitaker. And he said, hey, man, do you want to talk about the scene? And I went, do I want to talk about the scene? I said, I can't believe this. In L.A., the actors. He said, yeah, and so we went outside and we started talking about the scene and I saw the way he had, there's a reason why he's so good. I saw the way he had scored his script yeah. and he was asking me my opinion about his choices and I was blown away. And that, again, that taught me um, that there are people that care and that there's a reason that they're good at what they do. Right. So instead of, again, being on a Hollywood set with a bunch of people that thought that they were, you know, this greatest thing since sliced bread because they're doing a movie, that there were people on that set that cared about what they did. And Eastwood also was one of those. He let the actors do what they wanted to do. He, I remember there was, there was one part, I, I can't even remember if it was in the movie, there were no lines, but Bird's funeral, mm. uh, Charlie Parker's funeral, he's in the hearse, and his band is outside, and I had played Johnny Wilson, the drummer in his band, right. and for some reason, I knelt down on the floor, all the extras were background was they were around and a couple of the other actors and they were by the hearse and i knelt down i stooped down on the ground and it was a rainy day damp outside and i just stooped down on the ground and i started crying and 30 seconds later there was a presence i felt on the side of me and it was eastwood and again he's a joker and i was i was into what I was supposed to be into. There were no lines, but I was trying to be full in the situation. And he went, ah, method actor. forget that so working on projects of this scale whether big projects big budgets big names sometimes attached to them uh what do you do for yourself to stay grounded to stay focused michael kane has a great book called um, acting on camera yes he does and uh in one of the chapters kane talks about being in his trailer knowing his lines basically backwards and forwards that's what one has to be able to do to stay focused because the reality is the second ad or something could call you to be on the set at 10 o'clock in the morning but for whatever reasons they may not get to you till seven o'clock that night and if you carelessly you know dissipate your energy and your focus you're not going to be fresh on that set coming in where everybody else has been there for nine or ten hours and you're coming in to do your scene or whatever and you're blowing everything right the crew is going to let you know immediately the rest of the right. act you know that's what it's about staying staying focused keeping the distractions away i did another movie and i'm not going to well i could mention the title of it where she was cut out of the movie. They gave this actress who was a stand-in a small part in the movie. Mm-hmm. This is a true story. I'm not going to mention the title of this movie. She treated that she was the stand-in for one of the leads. Right. Beautiful woman. You'd go in the makeup trailer. I remember I went in the makeup trailer the first day. I was trying to figure out who is this woman giving all this, I call it altitude. Who is this <laughs> giving all this altitude i looked on the call sheet i went to you know one of the wardrobe i said who is this she said she's the stand-in for so-and-so i went okay right well they gave her maybe three lines in the movie the day that her three lines were to be shot everybody showed up on that set it didn't matter whether 
you weren't called or not. Behind the cameras, everybody was there just to see what this person was going to do. Because everybody had been touched by her altitude previously. Or they they heard mm -hmm. that she was a biatch. Mm. They were walking away from craft services, leaving a turkey sandwich there, coming back. Wait, she's up on the... Oh, I gotta see this. Hold my coffee. I'm coming. Here you we better go. believe it. I gotta see this. I have to tell you, she bombed. Mm. She couldn't walk and she couldn't talk. The sun was going down. I... We, <laughs> The crew was getting pissed off. She ran off of the set crime. Oh. She knew she had just, and the sun had gone down and she was sitting by the craft services wagon. And of course I walk over. Right. <laughs> and as she's, <laughs> and I said, yeah, didn't go so well, did it? <laughs> she went, Everybody thinks I'm, what was she? Everybody thinks I'm standoffish, but I'm really shy. And all this. And I was like looking at her and I'm like, yeah, honey, tell me another one. This yeah. is the performance that you should have been giving <laughs> in front of the cameras. Yeah. And I just said, you know, you learned a valuable lesson. Mm -hmm. You know that you should have been walking around here treating everybody with common decency instead of you thinking that you're like the queen bee or something. Right. There are plenty of stories like that. So anyway, being able to be focused and be a good person and to be able to come out there and do the job. So what? You just broke up with your boyfriend. You just broke up with your girlfriend. They don't care. Yeah. It's like in the rehearsal hall for a theater. You come in the rehearsal hall, you're there to do a job. Yeah, leave the rest outside. It's not part of the job. A lot of people can't do that because it becomes drama. <laughs> Enough dr I mean, you know, mm -hmm. okay? I've seen it. You have too, I'm sure. Absolutely. So in your experience, how do you successfully build and maintain relationships with casting directors? Well, because, uh, you know, I've pulled myself out of the New York market mm -hmm. now and because I'm here at this university and because of all my travels, I still get a chance to act and do things. I'm going to open a new Shakespeare festival in California in 2018. I just know a lot of people. After you've been around, the assistants become the head honchos. Mm. So now, you know, um, I can make phone calls to certain people and just say hello, or pe my calls or my emails will be returned immediately because you've been doing it for a while. But over time, you've had you've maintained professional correspondence with them. Uh, what do you think is the best way to do that? Oh, you always just see. I'm not on Facebook. I think I'm one of the few people on this earth that's not on Facebook. Right. I'm the perfect person that should be on Facebook uh -huh. or have a blog, but I'm not. So what I do is I always just drop a little casual thing about what I'm doing. Right. You know, that's what I do. And that always, and I know it's those emails are usually replied to if people care. I mean, sure. just because I'm getting ready to do this other Shakespeare show, it doesn't, it just lets people know that you're busy and that you're working and that you're happy and satisfied. You know, that's all it. I'm going to do a film uh, in, um, in Lexington, Kentucky next year. I believe they're going to start shooting it in June. Again, the director was one of my students. I've known him for 20 years. Wow. You know, I've seen, I mean, coming out of coaching him and eventually him going to graduate school and then, you know, playing, you you know, Benedict and Much Ado and all these other roles, he decided that, you know, he wanted to do something else and blah, blah, blah. And so now he's morphed into this, I mean, the guys, the people that he's around, he's morphed into this wonderful thing where he gets money for his writing. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's just so that's like, I guess, the newest case in point of just somebody saying, hey, man, I'm writing this part. 
I think that you sh- I'm going to write this for you. Would you like to do it? We're not talking about a Hollywood blockbuster movie, mm. but it, again, it's something that where I get a chance to practice the craft. Who cares about Shakespeare festivals? Only certain people that like Shakespeare. Who cares that somebody's going to be doing this role, that role? It's only for the enjoyment of being able to know or hope that you can pull off a job well done. Mm. That's what it's about. Yeah. Oh, hold on. Here's a, here's a story. I don't watch television. Do you know who I know and I used to hang out with? Who's that? Brian Cranston. Oh, really? I'm looking at something in a magazine and I'm going, he was on that show Breaking what? Breaking Bad, yeah. Brian's great. He's we great. used to talk about things all the time. Man, if I would see him, he would pick it up. He th- you talk about someone who's, uh, I respect him a lot for this. You talk about someone who uh, is giving lessons out there to people about uh, what it means to think about your the job that you have to do as an actor, uh, your your work as a as in the business and in the industry and where you fit in and committing your time to it and knowing that you're in it for the long haul and knowing how to effectively brand yourself and and work your job and when you go into the audition you're you're there to give a performance as he says you're there you're that is your job you have the job in that moment so you can do what you need to do and then forget about it and move on being very objective about it I mean, he seems like he's grown and learned a lot through his experience, and he's been in it for a very long time. And he shares that with other people as much as possible when anyone asks him about acting, and I think that's that's incredible. It's very nice. I was on Loving for two years with Brian. Yeah. That's a soap opera that's no longer on uh, on ABC. Right. And Brian and I used to talk. We used to be on the train together. My God. And I've said, no wonder he's doing what he's doing. And then I've seen him on interviews and I go, oh, yeah, sure. Because didn't in the show he shaved his head. Yeah, right. right? Yeah. I, so, so I would see it and I go, eh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, you know, everybody I know is talking about breaking Brad, bad. And then all of a sudden I, oh, Brian. <laughs> so there's a reason, man, that, you know, certain people are doing things. And that's, and that's wonderful. But you also said something right now. You said he's been in the game a long time. Yes, he has. Long time. Yeah, and there are a lot of people that have been in the game a long time. And you, if you go, you, you know, if you go around the block more than once, you meet everybody. I think there's a note on my door that the graduate students put. They said, "Baron Kelly, most likely to know everybody in the world." <laughs> <laughs> Baron Kelly, hmm. of course, he knows everybody. <laughs> you know. So I'm sorry. No, so, that yeah. I think that's a great that's a great antidote. But one thing that I'm interested in. And I think it's useful for actors, especially beginning actors, to get a handle on is uh, when an actor goes into a room, any actor with uh, any splash of ethnicity in them that their agent can market has experienced this, I'm sure, or will experience this a, a number of times over. You get a, a some sides, you get a role that you get to go in for. But it's very stereotypical. You mean the the writing is horrible. The writing is stereotypical, and uh, and just ethnically and racially speaking, they're they're putting you in, they're pigeonholing this character perhaps, in in a place that isn't that isn't all, certainly what you want to be a part of, and and may not be something that's that's the best representation anyway. But uh, you still have a job to do. So how do you, if you have the opportunity to do this? And it's something that you do still want to commit to. How do you approach that in the most professional way possible to still put your best foot forward and do the best job you can do? Well, I remember in New York auditioning for a couple of things. And the I would hear things like, uh, you know, can you be a little bit more like uh, Eddie Murphy? Yeah. Eddie? <laughs> I would say Eddie Murphy. 
Or, you know, can you be a little bit more black? Yeah. I said, black, what? you know, first of all, if somebody needs a job, here's the first thing I always tell somebody. You need your mortgage payment. There's nothing else coming down the pike. You're not going to sell your body out there somewhere. Mm. And somebody wants you to do a particular role or, or somebody, if there's an opportunity for you to audition for a role that you necessarily wouldn't want to audition for, but it's going to, I mean, look at, look at the, the wire. Yeah. Those were, come on, come on. and the case in point for that is I always tell actors to try to look for the humanity in a role. Now, Television writing and the way scripts are fashioned are different than the way film scripts are put together. So there are certain clues and there's certain information that an actor can glean from. And even if it's two lines, there's a little different thing that can happen. But the same sort of actor work goes into it. So like what, in, what information, what sort of details do you think that you could point out that people could glean from the scripts like that? Well, here we go again. What are the basic acting things that people forget about when they are um, auditioning for a film? Who, what, when, where, why? Mm -hmm. That is so freaking important. Who, what, when, where, why? Because each one of those things bounces off what you're going to be doing and what you're going to be saying on camera auditioning right case in point let's say if it's a cop and robber show or let's say oh you want to talk about stereotypical role. somebody who's coming into a very upscale lawyer's office and these people are coming out of a very urban environment how somebody coming out of an urban environment situating themselves feeling themselves into that particular situation is going to be a little bit different than somebody that's used to navigating in that particular world. Right. The, the sights, the sounds, the smells, all of that. This is why Meryl Streep is so brilliant with what she does. If you don't think, and I'm digressing a little bit, even for a role like when she was in The Devil Wears Prada, if you don't think that woman sat at that desk that she had to make that desk her own, okay, or even in her house, the brownstone that she had mm -hmm. sitting in that, that's what it's about. And how the body adjusts and how that physical adjustment affects the psychological adjustment this is what actors forget and bringing that embodiment of your environment or your circumstances of which it is both into the audition room is going to set you apart is going to set you apart so if it's a stereotypical if, I, I would assume if it's a, a you know whatever somebody's going to say as a stereotypical cliche particular role it's up to the actor if they want to do it or not that's number one so it's not like all of a sudden that's the only thing that's out there. But there are certain actors that they get typed for certain kinds of roles until they can sort of break out of that. Sure. In the beginning, John Turturro played hotheads, right? Yeah. He played hotheads. I mean, the man had more depth than that, but he certainly played hotheads. Loudmouth Italian, you okay. know. But he did it in a certain way. Mm -hmm. I always tell actors to look at that beginning clip in that in that movie, Woody Allen movie, Annie was it Annie Hall, where he plays a writer and he's got like two lines and he's going, "You're not saying my words, what's?" Right. <laughs> or whatever he's saying, and Woody Allen's coming down the hallway. He says, "You're not, you're, you know." Right. It says it all right there. The tempo, the energy, where he is, it feeds the scene. 
<laughs> and actors have to learn how to do that. It can be a little harder with the two-line roles and all of that because maybe there, there's a reason that those two-line roles are in there. Sure. That's what a lot of actors forget. Those two-line roles or three-line roles could be there for a reason to spark the other characters in a different way. Yeah, you're part of a larger story. You're part of a larger story. And the actor has to understand how their role fits into the larger story. Yeah. And that's what a lot of people don't do. They don't understand the tempo, the, 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 the tone of a particular show when they go in and read. So it depends on what they bring to that role. You know, even if you're playing a cop uh, on the street, you know, it depends on what is the cop around? How is the cop in that environment? How militaristic are that co is that cop? Right. How humanistic is that cop towards somebody? There's a way. But if you give a choice in the room, anybody that's smart is going to know that the actor is giving a choice. Then let them give you an adjustment right. if that's not what they're seeing. Or maybe you spark them in a way that they're going, oh, that's interesting. We didn't think about that. Right. And then they write the role differently when you're called back or when you're showing up on the set. I mean, when you get the, you know, when you get the job and the agent sends you the revised script, mm -hmm. you go, oh, this is different. This isn't what I read, but they liked that. It happens all the time. I have a friend of mine, she was auditioning for when ER was on, she was auditioning for a pregnant woman that was giving birth in, uh, in, uh, in an elevator. Mm. So I get the requisite actresses were all in the producers in the in the, uh, you know, the waiting room, you know, and the actresses, you know, one by one went in and did their thing. I can tell you that when she went in there, she told me this. she went in there and she asked if she could lay down. There was an extra couch in there. She gave birth on that fucking couch. <laughs> She got the job. Yeah. So you got these young guys, the writers and the producers are sitting going, this is great. This is going to make that. That's what it's about. Mm -hmm. Bring your A game. Mm -hmm. The A game doesn't necessarily mean what you look like. Mm -hmm. If it's worth you and you have the craft to fashion something, again, that word craft, you know, silversmiths, that's a craft. People don't look at the craft of acting anymore, man. They, it's not looked at. It's not looked at it that way. I don't know if it's valued that way anymore. It's valued that way in Britain still, but even the RSC is in competition with these blockbuster movies and all that sort of stuff. You know, to fashion a role, fashion a part. I remember you in a piece of my heart. Hmm. The image that I will remember is when you came out there with that cane at the end of the play. Do you remember? Yeah, I remember. And you had changed from the beginning of the play to the end of the play. You had that uniform on. You came out there, your body and your space was in a completely different level than when you went through the play, which then you brought the audience along with you. Right. A lot of actors don't understand that. Well, I think one of the things that uh, I certainly try to do with this podcast, and I think the opportunity that we have, is to allow people the understanding of being able to match that craft with the business side because both have to exist in the same place at the same time you better believe it and you'll sacrifice your craft and all this work that you've put into it if you're not doing the other side well enough to stay competitive that's correct that's ex exactly right learning how to meld the two 
You know what I mean? Learning. Yeah. And that that takes a while. It does, yeah. It takes a while. It takes a while. So what are some things that you do for yourself, Baron, to keep yourself grounded, to keep the stress at bay when the business can get uh, a little intense? Well, what I always did, I mean, it's a little different now because, you know, if I'm locked into a, a contract to teach, it's not like I'm waiting home now for the agents, of the, even though there is an agency here, believe it or not, I've never even bothered to sign up with them. Right. So I'm not waiting home now for the agents and the, you know, to call me about, you know, whatever. Uh, so it's a little bit different. But when the one thing that I always did, I always worked out and I always read. I read Kirk Douglas's biography, a number autobiography a number of years ago, where he said that uh, when he started going on film sets, or when he was traveling, he always carried a, uh, a briefcase full of books. Mm. That's what I have. Books. Books are my friends. Uh. Books. And not just about acting, but about sure. about the world. And I'm, I'm interested in a lot of different things. So I keep my... I keep my awareness about the world in tune. So that helps me that when I go into a creative project, again, I go into the project f from different angles. I just don't have a narrow focus. You're feeding your imagination. Oh, yeah. Yes, indeed. Feeding the imagination. But I guess I've always done that ever since I was a child. And that's not something I take lightly. Right. So I, that's, how I, that's how I pretty much stay focused and, and get on my motorcycle and ride. Nice. Hey, actor CEOs, Mike Moreno here talking directly to my listeners. I hope you're enjoying this episode of the podcast. I just want to take a second to remind you to sign up for our newsletter at actorceo.com slash newsletter. When you do, you'll get exclusive content delivered to your inbox on Monday alongside the episode release. It's a great way to add tools to your arsenal like an audition scene database, video tutorials with guests, deals on business cards and headshots, and many more that are only offered in the newsletter. Take your career to the next level and sign up at actorceo.com slash newsletter. Now back to the show. Is there a, a sort of standout piece of advice that you've been given on the business of acting that you've always held on to? Oh, God, I could make you laugh right now. Great actor. He died. Uh, was a very good friend of mine. It was seven years ago. Mm. If Errol Flynn was alive today, he'd be like Errol Flynn. Wow. He used to always tell me, and his teeth would be, those dentures, right, <laughs> would be gleaming. He would always tell me, he says, Baron, my dear boy. There's only one thing that matters in this world, and it's a five-letter word, M-O-N-E. <laughs> uh. <laughs> here was a man that had been acting since 1939, wow. and that was the piece of advice. And they were like, well, I thought it was going to be a little deeper than that. <laughs> M-O-N-E. <laughs> I... I I think the most important thing for a lot, you know, here, I've talked to a lot of people and today people are coming out of school with heavy student loans. Yeah. You have to pay a lot of money. So, you know, people are doing all kinds of things. I think the most important thing is for somebody not to get cynical and to hold on to a true sense of self. And that's very hard when you're trying to survive or, or different levels of survival, different kinds of hardships. That's why we see or we've seen people on the West Coast, drugs and alcohol. We've seen that in the business on the East Coast as well. There are all kinds of tortured souls out there. I mean, you know, right. see Philip Seymour Hoffman, who knows what's in that dark recess of the mind. And a lot of people, you know, they choose a lot of other stimulants to give them some kind of peace of mind. You got to have peace of mind because the only power that the actor has in the business is 
no. Hmm. That's when you have the power. Somebody wants you to do a show. I'm sorry, I, I'm not available. Or there's a conflict. No. It's a little different when somebody has a lot of attendant pressures of mortgage payments, childcare payments, whatever. Right. But you still have to stay true to yourself because, you know, you don't want to, not you, but somebody doesn't want to be 50 years old living like a 23-year-old uh, hoping for the brass ring. I've met a couple of those guys out in California living in a guest house, their daughter or their son's guest house. Sure. You know, yeah. they, they have agents, they go out on things, but it's like, you know, the reality in California is one phone call can change your fortunes 10 times over. Mm. But the money, the money isn't even what it used to be 20 years ago, too. Uh, but still, people that are holding on to that dream, and they're cynical. They're cynical, they're angry. That's, that's not the way to go, at least for me. And so I've learned how to, I guess, with my travels internationally to have expanded my, my net wider than most and i i love that you know because then i can talk to friends in finland who are actors in russia various places and you know we have a common language of the the creative common language so that supportive community for you is really important oh yes but also in the supportive community one has to be very careful not to be around cynical people that can drag you down absolutely well said baron uh, good insight i think so let's talk about your book, An Actor's Task, Engaging the Senses. What brought you to writing that piece of material, and why do you think it's a, an important resource? I never thought I could write a book about acting. I was approached by the publishers, mm. and they, they, they came up to me and said, you know, they liked the way that I worked as an actor, so then they approached me, and literally, that's how it happened. Wow. They said, Baron, we think you know, when, when the, the publisher said, when am I going to get that book on acting from you? And I said, what book? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I can't write a book. He said, yes, you can. He said, why don't you give me a few pages? It took me about a month to think I had a few pages and I sent it to him and he sent it out for review and, uh, they were positive coming back, and he sent me a contract, and he said, let's go for it. <laughs> I said, Are you I, I said, Ron, Ron Pullins. I said, Ron, I'm traveling. I don't have time <laughs> to write a book. Sure. And he says, he says, that's okay. It took six years. Wow. You know, I was traveling, and then after about two or three years, he would say, you know, that's just what I like, to sign up a writer that doesn't have time to write a book. <laughs> but he and his wife, he they believed in me, and um, – Newburyport, Massachusetts, they took me out to a very fancy lunch, and I stood up at the table, someplace like, looked like the Hamptons, East Hamptons or something, and he, I stood up at the table, and I said, Ron, it's because you believed in me. That's the reason that this book is coming into fruition. That's great. And because, you know, I've been around the block quite a few times, and what I've noticed in academic institutions is that the one book that a lot of people, and I can't fault the guy that's written the book because I know him. Uh, we see each other every year just about, is Robert Cohen's Acting One. Sure. Now, because I used to look through Bob's book, Robert's book, and I'd say, well, if I had to write something, what could I write that would be a supplementary book to his book, to Uta Hagen's Respect for Acting, you know, various books that for beginning acting classes and more advanced acting classes that these actors need to know anyway. 
And so I looked at the way that I was trained by all these different, and I had trained with Uda and I had trained with Sanford Meisner. So mm. when these people were alive, I didn't train with Stella, but I had friends that trained with Stella when she was teaching in New York. And um, I knew that what was important to me was understanding how that psycho psychophysical connection happened between <clears throat> in the body for the actor. And other people have written about this, but there were certain exercises that I had started to develop in my travels, which again helped actors engage their senses, helped actors tune into particular stimuli that they could use in the craft of acting. Uh, and this is what the reviews have been saying that even people who are professionals are going, wow, these are things that, you know, I'd just like to have, you know, because the things that, you know, that we forget about. Right. Is there an example you could draw on or obviously your book is full of them, I'm sure, but uh, maybe give us a taste of like what, uh, what exactly you're talking about. The great actress, Kim Stanley. Do I talk about this in the book or not? Kim Stanley was considered the female Brando hmm. in the fifties. She taught in California until she died in the 80s. And she had an exercise called the needs, which were two actors come into a space and they don't talk, but they come into the space each with their heightened need, connecting into each other without talk and also not, not connecting into each other, but still being full with their particular need, regardless whether it's to destroy, to seduce, whatever and the other actor has theirs so they come in drama right away right mm. and they have to sit and they can't move away from each other and how their behavior informs what they're doing mm. and going through the roller coaster ride of the interaction of the exchange as i call it right so there are exercises that i have developed so actors can understand about the negotiation of the exchange. I, see. I always ask actors, what does a moment mean? So, you know, everybody's going to have their own definition of what a moment is. At its basic level, it's about the interact. It's about the negotiation of the exchange that happens between two people and how to connect into that particular emotion, right. into that particular scope of what you're doing. Uh, there are these um, exercises that I have a progression of emotional exercises that lead from, I guess, you know, one to five or one to three and physically what that means and emotionally to go through that being coached and so that the actor can viscerally feel in their body what that feels like. Mm -hmm. And I've read a lot of books and I, I said, this is the way to start to begin to train. It's not a movement book, mm -hmm. but it's, it's, it's a way in so that actors can viscerally feel their emotions in a particular way and not just say, okay, I'm going to go crazy. I'm going to be over emotional. Right. So that, that's what it's about. It's not so much a book about teaching action. A lot of acting teachers stress you know, to teach action. What is your action and all that? Right. But before that, the actor has to understand the keys that they need to play in that sort of negotiation of the exchange. So it's about the keys and tuning of the actor's instrument 
so that they have a palette to play from. Right. That is uniquely theirs and, and that they're viscerally connected to. Exactly. That's what the book's about. Amazing. So where can people stay up with you, Baron? Uh, you have a website, right? Unfortunately, I'm not on Facebook. Everybody, including my web designer, wants me to get a blog. Mm -hmm. The website is just baronkelly.com. Kelly, baronkelly.com, you know, punch my name in on the internet. Things, <laughs> things come up indeed. Yes. <laughs> if anybody wants to contact me about anything, I'm at the university of Louisville in the theater arts department. Just send me uh, an email, baron.kelly at louisville.edu and a, and a plug for the program. The, the program's really, I was at Erda's auditioning uh, graduate students uh, in January. Wow. The program is changing now with me. There are three new hires coming on. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's phenomenal what's happening. So, and, and students are doing their research. They're coming into the hotel rooms, telling me about the faculty yeah. and all that. So it's, it's, it's a good thing. So hopefully, but in the spring of next year, I'll be at the university of Kansas as a, as a, an endowed professor, uh, for January through May or June of 2017. Wow. Fantastic. Thanks a lot for the opportunity, man. I wish everybody luck, uh, who's listening to this podcast and, and good luck with you, because it's, uh, you know, go out there and do battle. Thanks a lot, Dr. Baron Kelly, for coming on and sharing your experience and the lessons that you've learned. I think it's going to help a lot of people, and uh, it's a great opportunity. We appreciate it. I know there'll be cynical people out there that will probably say, that and his two cents will get you on the train in New York City. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> well said. Okay, man. Find all the resources mentioned in this episode in the show notes at ActorCEO.com slash 23. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to the Actor CEO podcast on iTunes and at ActorCEO.com.